This is Effed Up, a conversational podcast about injustice, true crime, and rosé. Season one of Effed Up is a story about the corruption in one state's crime lab. Listeners are advised that this podcast contains opinions that are our own. So, hello. Hi. 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 I'm a little sad today because it's our finale. Womp, womp. Also, I think I just said finale. 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 Okay. <laughs> That's for you, Newman. the finale. I say finale. Priya says finale. Remember we learned that on Stranded when Did we were we? working together? Mm-hmm. I'm, you said montage and finale. <laughs> and I was like, what? You, you would mock me. You so monster. <laughs> How dare you? She would mock me so much I about that, too. I thought that was funny. What do I say? Montage? Montage. Montage. It sounds fancier than montage. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Welcome yes. to this final episode. The finale. Or the finale. So I am Priya Hubbard. I'm Jessica Borges. And I'm Keith Burke. Okay, so we're going to jump right in and we're going to get into a little bit of a recap. It's not like a total recap. It's total Or is it a recap? I see things funny. Guys. (laughs) We like it. It's okay. So we are going to do a little bit of a recap, but we're not going to obviously go through the entire podcast. If you are not caught up, we suggest (laughs) you starting with episode one and then... Go through and then come to here. Mm. Yep. So in this episode called the fucked up finale, we're going to tackle reform. So I found as a writer to not give notes unless you have a solution, like not point out a problem in your notes unless you have a solution for that problem. Otherwise, just shut the fuck up. Keep your opinions to yourself. Who fucking asked you? (laughs) (laughs) So in anything one does, it's always a best practice to not point out a problem without providing a potential solution. And thus far, this entire series has highlighted a lot of the problems within the lab with fraternization, with law enforcement and prosecutors, shitty accrediting agencies, and more. But there are people in North Carolina who have been working tirelessly to combat these injustices that were happening here. And one of the reasons that we wanted to tell the story to do this podcast is when we first spoke to Chris Muma about Greg Taylor's case and the overall flaws of the system, she said to us, God forbid anyone goes back and tries to figure out why this happened. Well, we wanted to go back and examine everything that occurred and figure out why. And today we want to address that there were changes made, but we also want to acknowledge that we, the people, have a long way to go. So here's Jess to get Hi. It. <laughs> <laughs> you frightened me a little bit there. <laughs> Yeah, sorry. That was like a (laughs) pearl-clutching situation. (laughs) But I'm fresh out of pearls. (laughs) So here's Jess to get us all caught up on how the people of North Carolina attempted some reform. Right. So we wanted to go back and see what had been done in all of these cases, how they happened, and if any changes were made. Because increasingly, we felt that the system was a sinking ship and that the system was basically just plugging holes with Band-Aids. Not to say that plugging the holes isn't important, but if the entire ship is sinking, maybe there's another way that you can keep it afloat. Right. You need to do more systemic changes. Right. Mm -hmm. Not just make it look superficially like you're covering all the blemishes. Look over here. Don't look at this forest fire over here. Right. (laughs) Yeah. After all... After Alan Gell's case in August 2004, the governor signed a bill into law that required DAs to provide all of the investigation files from their cases to defense attorneys when asked. This includes law enforcement notes, 
witness statements, test results, and a list of probable witnesses that they may have called at trial. It's which so crazy that they about. even had to pass a law to do that. Right. Exactly. It should just be obvious. It, exactly. And especially since Brady versus Maryland right. was enacted in 1963. Right. Yeah. But in 2004 was when That's a federal law. So why are states allowed to go around that? Right. The attorney general at the time, Roy Cooper, made some major changes to the North Carolina SBI crime lab. He installed an ombudsman to, according to the North Carolina DOJ site, quote, address external and internal concerns regarding crime lab policies and procedures, as well as actions by crime lab employees. These issues may concern systemic practices and the training of employees. Additionally, the ombudsman will assist the agency to voluntarily resolve complaints and mediate conflicts concerning specific situations that require immediate attention. Documents and ASGLAD lab reports were posted for transparency. But as far as we can tell, the results of the internal investigation into training practices within the lab investigations into Brenda Bissett's work or other analyst work and the repercussions of those investigations haven't been made available. So I'm going to do a little sidebar. I was really shocked that the lab did internal investigations, but for some reason, the results were not made public, which I think is a really... Well, probably because it makes them look fucking bad. Yeah. I mean, you would assume. Let's yeah. hide this. No one will know. We just need a really big rug. Yes. Yeah. As far as I know, there was the training investigation, there was the alleged Brenda Bissett investigation, and I believe there was another investigation prior to that. I think there was an audit of the DNA section as well, but I don't know for positive and like 96% sure that there was one. And as far as I can tell, these were all internal investigations that were kept super under wraps. I don't think any public entity should ever have internal investigations. Like I'm diametrically opposed to internal affairs within police departments investigating. Well, you need an outside objective arbiter. And to make it public so that you're held accountable. Absolutely. So, Well, you sort of answered your question there. That's why it wasn't made public. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm opposed to lab employees investigating other lab employees as they did in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. You're charging people to investigate people that they've worked with or around. Right. Um, There's no way to be unbiased. Yeah. Yeah. Like, they're buddies. They work yeah. together. Or it, the conversely, it could be so many things, a piece of shit, that you're going to, like, judge them mm-hmm. more harshly. Yeah. Right. So then-governor, a man named Pat McCrory, who we've talked about before um, in this season, moved the SBI crime lab from under the purview of the attorney general, at the time who was Roy Cooper, mm-hmm. to under the purview of the Department of Justice, so that it was under the purview of the governor, basically. The name of the lab was changed from the NC SBI Crime Lab to the NC State Crime Lab. Interestingly enough, Roy Cooper ran for governor in 2016 and narrowly beat Pat McCrory. So the lab is under Roy Cooper again. Speaking of governors, after the audit report was released and all of the dust wasn't even close to being settled, the governor at the time, Bev Perdue, signed a bill making it a crime for lab workers to withhold results. She did not do the same for prosecutors, but at least some sort of baby step. Again, things yeah. that you should not have to pass a law for. <laughs> right. But well done. Yeah. The bloodstain pattern analysis unit was suspended during the audit. Interestingly, it has never been reinstated, which Marilyn Miller thinks is a mistake. That's very weird. Wait. So they have no people to check? Correct. In all of North Carolina? The use- Do they outsource it to yes. South Carolina? <laughs> All of the Carolinas. So Priya spoke with Marilyn Miller about reforms, and she specifically asked her about going back and retesting evidence in the face of new science or technology. And she felt that it would be a good idea, but wasn't sure if it was even possible due to lack of resources, time, and money. So which seems to be the 
issue with everything. Right. You just blame time, money, and resources. Well, we're going to get into that a little bit in a little bit. Mm-hmm. All the bits. All the bits. <laughs> <laughs> okay. In episode three, we went into the history of the crime lab in North Carolina. We listed its purposes and missions. What we didn't mention at the time is that all of the information was from the current crime lab's site. According to their site, quote, the North Carolina State Crime Laboratory and forensic laboratories across the nation are now subject to the ISO slash IEC 17025 standards. That's it at the end. (laughs) No more. Well, just kidding. There's more. (laughs) So many stupid acronyms. Yeah. And now they're adding fucking numbers. Like, Why did, what was the whole thing again? I started. <laughs> I got irate like four words in. Letters. Oh, letters. It's yeah, letters whatever. and numbers. It's just that that was what they call the accreditation. Standard. Say it again. ISO slash IEC seventeen o two five. That seems so random. Know. Apparently, it's an international standard, but it also seems like there are other international standards, more acronyms, and generally, oh. it's still super confusing and there doesn't seem to be one entity one global standard that the labs have to adhere to which seems like a flaw again yeah yeah to help keep everything consistent and like fair it seems that anab does this specific accreditation we cannot confirm that's who does the accreditation at the north carolina state crime lab but we certainly hope that they don't because as you may remember anab is the entity that either ate or married asglad lab do you remember that keith what ANAB was the the entity that ended up taking over Asglad Lab. Which was the entity that oversaw the state lab. Right. Okay. But ANAB took it over and just thought that <laughs> they're still called ANAB because they got married and it took it took the guy's last name. Or the girls. Blink, blink, blink. And Priya was like <laughs> said that she assumed that it was just ANAB eight Asglad Lab. And then therefore it's just ANAB. Okay, Asgard Lab bears a huge responsibility for the misconduct of the North Carolina SPI Crime Lab. There was some really bad shit that came out of that fucking lab, and yeah. Asgard Lab was supposed to be they were the oversight it, entity. And passing they, them. Yep. Mm-hmm. In perusing their site further, I checked out some of the documents that they have made public, the state crime lab, mm-hmm. including an update on the preservation of biological evidence, semen, blood, saliva, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it seems that they will preserve evidence in capital cases until the convicted person is executed or dies. So that's good. Did they uh, used to destroy it? In or some cases, yes. They don't need it no, anymore. That seems... There were statutes of li- limitations oh. and that kind of thing. So they will also preserve evidence in cases where the convicted received a life sentence until the convicted person dies. Okay. And then they will also preserve evidence in cases where the convicted pled guilty of a crime. And they'll keep this for three years. Wait. So if you plead it? guilty, they only don't keep expect your... them to hold on to your evidence very long. So, given what we know about coerced confessions, right? That's what deals, this seems really, really, really fucked up. Yeah, yeah. I will also note that I've visited their site quite a lot over the past three years in doing all of the research and stuff, and it changed a lot recently. It was possible to access policies, accreditation reports, etc. It was super easy to see all of this stuff up to about a year or so ago. But last week, I went to the site, and now one must have a Microsoft account to access their policies. Microsoft? Yeah. 
one must email the lab to get accreditation reports, and one must jump through some hoops to get access to these documents, whatever they may entail, when really they should just be super easily accessible for the people. Like mm-hmm. all of this shit should be yeah. made public. Well, yeah. it's, I mean, obviously some attorney told them to cover your ass and hide that stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not I, hide it, but like just make it harder to get because then people will give up. Right. But it used to be available. And you would think that, like, a lab that went through such a huge fucking scandal. Learned and hid stuff better? Oh, That's- you mean made things more... Oh, sorry. I thought you were going somewhere else. <laughs> right. <laughs> Do not laugh. Oops. Other reforms include... There's now a forensic advisory board in place that includes forensic scientists from a couple of different states. It might be nice for them to broaden that a little bit more and be more like the forensic commission that Marvin Schechter is on, where it incorporates folks from all different walks of life that are impacted or affected by forensic science. Like we talked about that a few episodes ago. Yeah, he was the lawyer who's on the state forensic commission where they have a number of people, like defense lawyers. He said podcast. He said podcasters. Yeah, he was was like, we could probably have some podcasters on there too. And I think he was just like trying to like, you know, sweeten me up a little bit. And I was like, okay. Sold. Done. Careful what you wish for. I know. I'd love to be on that commission. Yeah. It's probably I think you have to be in New York. It's I thought it was like, North Carolina. No, Schechter is based out of New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're saying like it would be good for North Carolina to have something similar to gotcha. use that as a model. It should also be noted that on their site, the minutes from their board meetings are available up until over a year ago, that is. So the last post that's there that shows the minutes from their meetings are from August 2018. So we don't know what really happened between then and now. So they've got this great forensic advisory board, but are they meeting anymore? Like, I think they meet twice a year. So why are there no meeting Mm. notes? Yeah. Hard to say. Hmm. We are heartened to see that the new director of the lab, Vanessa Martinucci, has a forensic background from all over the country. First one. Mm -hmm. She has a (laughs) master's in biology and she was a supervisor at the Houston Forensic Science Center. You're going to have to trust us for the moment that this is a good thing. We'll explain that in a little bit. We've heard from a few people, either civilians or otherwise, that are still impacted by the actions of the SBI crime lab or people who work in the justice system, that this new, as of about eight years ago, position hasn't really helped. And there are very real complaints about the ombudsman. So I guess the point we're trying to make here is that they're trying. So it's like you said earlier, they're waving one hand in the air over here making fixes but really they're doing stuff over here yeah on the surface level it's like well we're doing x y and z and we're creating these new positions we're putting these checks and balances and things so everything's okay but we're still doing all the same bullshit we did before right Mm -hmm. exactly i mean some of the stuff they have actually reformed and like there's no bloodstain pattern analysis unit so they can't actually do the oh that's just because they learned how to collect blood perfectly (laughs) so there's they'd never have to test anything never right just like, you know, Trump has perfect phone calls. <laughs> a lot of the stuff does seem to be the band-aids that you were talking about On the earlier. Ship. Yeah. It's just like these little small seemingly fixes for these huge gaping wounds, you know, that aren't going to actually solve anything. But it looks like, well, we're doing, we're doing some something. Some of it does solve some stuff. Like, I, I don't want to denigrate That's true. North Carolina. So people didn't just wake up in February of 2010 when Greg Taylor was exonerated. People had been trying to enact change for a while, actually, including a man we've spoken about through the series, a man named Chief Justice I. Beverly Lake. Remember him? Yes. Okay. Chris Muma, who's the executive director of the North Carolina Mm -hmm. Center on Actual Innocence, early in her career, she was clerking for him. 
Right. And then when she was doing so, she started noticing that the cases she was reading about were sort of problematic and that she might have voted differently than the way that the jury actually had. Chief Justice Lake had also been noticing the same sort of problematic issues in North Carolina cases. These were affecting real human beings. We covered some of the cases that gave him pause, including Daryl Hunt's case. In fact, Chief Justice Lake in 2002, in response to these kinds of concerns, his own and the concerns of those around him, established the Criminal Justice Study Commission. Its purpose was to review police and prosecution procedures for factors that contributed to wrongful convictions. The commission helped birth the Innocence Inquiry Commission the commission that reviews credible cases such as Greg Taylor's in which the defendants and their advocates claim wrongful conviction. The IIC is who heard Greg Taylor's case and ultimately found he was actually innocent after 17 years in prison. We're really sad to report that Chief Justice Lake died last month. Oh no. Yeah. But he leaves an incredible legacy of trying to make the world a better place. So we need more people like him. Yeah. Speaking of legacies, we spoke a couple weeks ago about Daryl Hunt, and part of his legacy was the Racial Justice Act. It's also part of Chief Justice Lake's legacy. These two men, along with many others, were responsible for getting the Racial Justice Act enacted in 2009. We touched on the Racial Justice Act a bit in our episode about death row. The act allowed death row inmates to challenge their sentences if they believed and could prove that their sentence was negatively impacted by racial bias. As we mentioned then, it wasn't just retroactive. People being tried in capital cases could also try to demonstrate during sentencing that they felt racial bias was in play in their case. We also discussed that in December 2012, three defendants who had been on death row, their cases were reheard retroactively because the Racial Justice Act allowed for their cases to be reheard without repercussions of double jeopardy. And these three defendants won their lives back. Actually, it was four defendants who did, but we only covered three at the time. And actually, there were six total defendants. But just a reminder that the defendants were able to serve life sentences rather than being sentenced to death. And this was possible because they had filed their grievances prior to 2013. That was when former Governor Pat McCrory signed the repeal of the Racial Justice Act. This repeal fucked with all of the cases that were reversed. So let's find out what happened in each of the cases while remembering that it is illegal to use race as a reason for a peremptory strike. So this is the shit that went down with jury selection in four of the cases where the defendants won their lives back. This is part of the proof that racism was in play during jury selection. So we're going to get into each individual's case. In Tillman Goffin's case, where he, a black man, was pursued by the police. This one is really upsetting. He was running through some woods. They chased him and eventually apprehended him. In his case, a prospective juror who was black overheard two white jurors say that, quote, he should have never made it out of the woods. This prospective juror brought this up and the prosecutor questioned him about it. The state then struck him from the jury. Not the two racist white people? Nope. In total, the prosecution removed five of the seven qualified black people from the jury. And kept the two racist pieces of shit? Mm -hmm. Yep. (sighs) Yeah. Golfin was ultimately sentenced by a jury of 11 white jurors and one black person. Interestingly, this was in Johnson County, which is the same county that these two white men were ostensibly calling for a lynching of Tillman Golfin. And it's the same county that had billboards that boasted that this was KKK country. These billboards were up until the 80s. Mm. So it just kind of gives you a little bit of context as to like how some of these cases were being vetted. Did you hear about those billboards? Mm-mm. So Priya showed me a billboard now. It says, this is Klan country, love it or leave it. Help fight communism and interrogation. Yay, America. <laughs> yep. 
So another case is Rayford Burke, who is black and had an all-white jury. Which is great. Jury of your peers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which we now know is not something that we get. Uh, I was going to say, because even in like movies and shit like that, you see them like literally doing exactly what they're saying that the law says you're not supposed to do. Is it like, get rid of the black people, get rid of this person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Help build a pe- an army of people that will go along with the narrative that you're trying right. to present. Right. The narrative that black people are scary. Yeah. Or just however you get that, you're the person that you're yeah. you know, trying to get in prison. Okay. The prosecutor drew attention to Rayford's size and race as though both were negatives. The prosecutor called him a, quote, big black bull amid a plea for the jury to find him guilty. So using this kind of language. That vernacular is dehumanizing. It dehumanizes the defendant. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Quintel Augustine is another case. He is also black. The prosecutor wrote handwritten notes regarding the prospective jurors. Like we had mentioned earlier was mm-hmm. what they do. The prosecutor described the prospective white juror who admitted to drinking by saying, drinks, country boy, okay. So that was like the note that they put next to him. But they described a prospective juror who was black, who also admitted to drinking, as a black wino. It should also be noted that he referred to a prospective black female juror as, okay, she was from a, quote, respectable black family. There were no notes regarding white female prospective jurors and families from which they came. So it just is very skewed. Yeah. Um, As far as Marcus Robinson goes... There was a prospective juror who was black and a high school graduate. The prosecutor asked this prospective juror if he'd repeated grades or had trouble reading. This prosecutor never asked any of the white jurors these questions. This prosecutor did admit he was not particularly racially fair. At Christina Walter's trial, the prosecutor asked prospective jurors something like whether or not they'd ever been burgled. There were two white prospective jurors who'd had some minor property crimes and felt it wasn't a big deal. They ended up on the jury. However, the prosecutor struck a prospective black juror because she explained he, quote, did not feel like a victim after his car had been broken into and his CD player had been stolen. Prosecutors struck 10 of the 14 qualified black jurors. Hmm. So finding like little nitpicky things to... Justify being a racist piece of shit? Yes. Eloquently put. Yes. Well said. (laughs) Cassandra, the director of the ACLU Capital Punishment Project, said, quote, One of the things that was so remarkable about the Racial Justice Act was that in North Carolina, when you suspected that the prosecutor was acting discriminatory, you had no opportunity to question the prosecutor about what was going on in his or her mind when they took the actions that they did. But under the Racial Justice Act, the prosecutors in these hearings testified. They testified about what they were thinking when they exercised these overwhelming strikes against black jurors. So basically like would blow the lid off of their reasoning for selecting and getting rid of certain jurors. Hmm. But now we don't have that anymore. Right. Because why would we want a fair justice system? Mm -hmm. Throughout our series, we've been covering cases where crimes occurred 30 or 40 years ago, but the defendants were exonerated 10 years ago and where the crime lab was audited nine years ago. So we felt it was time to get current. As of about six weeks ago, the Racial Justice Act is back on the table, sort of. Okay. On August 26th and 27th, 2019, the state Supreme Court heard all six cases that fell under the RJA. On the table were a couple of choices. Do those four defendants get to try to get back the life without parole sentences? Mm -hmm. Can these defendants get all new hearings given the fact that they've already proven that racial discrimination was a factor in their cases? According to the NCC ADP, which is the North Carolina Coalition for Alternatives to the Death Penalty, in the other two cases, the court will decide whether people on death row who filed claims under the RJA will get the chance to present their evidence in court even after the law's repeal. They went on to say of the six defendants, three were sentenced to death by all white juries. 
We covered a Michigan study in our episode, Death Row is Fucked Up, that did a deep dive into the racial discrimination in jury selection. I thought it was really interesting. The NCC ADP breaks that study down even further and says, The RJA study found that qualified black jurors were struck from capital juries more than twice as often as white jurors. The researchers controlled for factors and the disparity was attributable only to race. Cassandra Stubbs spoke with a reporter at the Real News Network about everything happening with the RJA right now and represents one of the defendants, a guy named Marcus Robinson. Cassandra said, All four prisoners were moved from the prisons around the state where they'd been serving their life without parole sentences for multiple years at that point. She continued to say, There is nothing that would direct or permit the Department of Corrections to permit right after the North Carolina Supreme Court remanded moving these prisoners who had been sentenced to life with parole back to fucking death row. That's right, with no reason whatsoever. These four defendants were just moved back to death row. Mm. There was no new procedure. There was no new finding. There was no new court order. So is that okay? I mean, because they they said that racial justice act had been repealed, so they were like, we'll undo your Oh, that's like as soon as the Voting Rights Act was struck down, everyone's like, yeah, let's fuck up the system. Woo! Before they catch us and get us in trouble again. Let's fuck up. I don't even think that they're thinking that, though. I think they're thinking because the law has been repealed, it makes whatever was decided for them because of that law no longer applicable. Now we don't have to follow those honest and like... Right. So I actually had written... (laughs) Now we're back to everything being terrible again. (laughs) Why are you like turning the corner to like happy? (laughs) I mean... We're sprinkling in a little bit. Yeah. Are we... Mm-hmm. You gave me like one sprinkle and then you <laughs> flicked it off the ice cream cone. <laughs> That's what we do. So if the folks in the alleged justice system, there's quotes around the word justice there, we're doing something good. Like, I don't know, going back and removing folks who were in prison for something that's no longer illegal. So like in California, how many people are in prison for weed? Right. Like, yeah. I, know, I wondered about that. Like, is there any, there's not, right? So right. It's, it's probably similar where it's like, if you, you have, it's case by case. So you yeah. have to get a lawyer and try mm-hmm. to get your charges reversed. Just because it's not illegal now doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. The argument is it was illegal when you did it. Right. Right. So that's basically what these guys are saying. On the flip side, they're saying there was a law then, but that law is no longer in place. So you have to go back to death row. So why can't they do the flip of that and use it for fucking good? Yeah. And get people out of prison who are there for things that are no longer illegal is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, oh, because that would be the good thing to do. <laughs> right. That's not what we do Mm-mm. as humans. Maybe they're just being a little more overt in their racism than most folks these days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As far as the hearing goes, if the court rules in the defense's favor, those death row inmates could get new hearings and present evidence that jurors' race was a significant factor in their punishment. The RJA attorneys made a pressing argument that the state's highest court must take on this crucial issue. If it doesn't, it will send the message that the state is willing to execute people even after overwhelming evidence of racism in their trials has come to light. 
Cassandra said, never before has a state done what the state of North Carolina is attempting to do here. And never before has any court sanctioned dismissal of comparable allegations and proof of racial bias. The state's position is now that the Racial Justice Act has been repealed, we should just forget about the evidence of discrimination and move on. But the court cannot look away. Civil rights leader James Ferguson II said, when we stand back and we take a long view of history, we've got to go all the way back to the days of slavery. During those those days, capital punishment was largely imposed upon slaves and more often than not for crimes against white people. This is the original context in which we come today. During the arguments, attorneys for the North Carolina Attorney General's office did not dispute the evidence of discrimination. That's great. In fact, Except, they, ad- no, they admitted. Yeah, they admitted it was a problem. Oh. They said that it was racism in capital trials is serious and must be dealt with. Oh, I thought you were saying, yeah, we did that. However, mm, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> Does that mean you keep putting that sprinkle on there and just pink, flicking, <laughs> flicking it off my Sunday? Somehow, in almost the same breath, they asked the Supreme Court to deny the cases and leave the defendants to litigate their discrimination claims in the lower courts, which have failed for decades to root out racial discrimination in the death penalty. So basically what you're saying is they acknowledge that shit's fucked up, but we don't want to retry it because then that puts a spotlight on us doing a shit Correct. job. It's like, let's just leave it up to the lower courts really to handle. really shy. Oh. Yeah. Get over it. So as of this episode recording... It's not clear when the high court is expected to rule, and we are still waiting. Hmm, can't say I have a whole ton of faith. I read somewhere, too, that somebody, I forget who it was, was like, it's probably, we're probably not going to hear anything anytime soon. Like, I feel like they're going to drag their feet type of thing was the sentiment of, like, they're not in any rush to... Right, because once you open that door, it's opening the door for a lot of other things. So the New York Times editorial board wrote a article about the RJA, and it's really wonderfully written. We're going to post it in our, with our research links on the Facebook page. Yeah, I really recommend people read it because it's pretty incredible. But what struck me was the detail in which they showed that the actions of the prosecutors in these capital cases were clearly unconstitutional, based on a case that banned prosecutors from using their peremptory challenges to strike black jurors with impunity. In fact, the practice was so insidious that the United States Supreme Court banned it in 1986. It's a case called Batson versus Kentucky, and the court in Batson held that when prosecutors intentionally exclude black jurors because of their race, they aren't only hurting the defendant's chances at a fair trial, they are undermining public confidence in the fairness of our system of justice. So, right. yeah. So that was 1986. <clears throat> but... Just because the Supreme Court banned the practice doesn't mean that prosecutors weren't still doing it. They just got more adept at hiding it. Mm-hmm. The editorial board... Well, it's not like they handed over their notes anyway. <laughs> right? <laughs> Seems to be a recurring theme here where it's like everybody that's corrupt and gets busted for their corruptness just gets better about hiding their shady shit. Yeah, that's all it is. It's not- a leopard doesn't change its spots. A shitty prosecutor doesn't change their shitty ways. They just get better at hiding it. Yeah. Yeah. The editorial board even wrote, especially in places like North Carolina, this wasn't the behavior of a few bad apples. It was standard operating procedure. There was a document distributed to the North Carolina prosecutors in training that listed 10 categories of apparently race neutral explanations for striking a juror. Ew. Uh Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. In case a judge should ask. How like, does somebody know? So, oh. so you're like covering your tracks, but it's almost like code word. But yeah. it's like, 
How you know it, that if this terminology is in here, you know what to do. But to the rest of uh, the world that checks us out, it looks like we're not violating anything. Ugh. So the categories included inappropriate dress, physical appearance, attitude, and body language, and hair. People of color's hair. Hair that just recently in California in 2019 had to enact the crown law, which is a fucking law that people of color can safely wear their hair naturally without repercussions. What? Do you know about that? No. Yeah, just recently. The crown law? Mm-hmm. Wait, Prior to that, I, I feel like people got fired or sent home because their hair was natural. Ugh, people suck. Yep. It makes no sense. Right. It does if you're a racist piece of shit. True. So by the way, if you're not we've, picking we've up on... We've entered the anger portion of the podcast <laughs> for the day. By the way, if you're not picking up on the subtle racial cues that I'm writing and the editorial board wrote about this allegedly race-neutral document, it was entitled Batson Justifications Articulating Juror Negatives. As in, they were straight out saying what they're doing. They're going against the ruling in Batson versus Kentucky. Oh, shit. In a, in a roundabout way. Yeah. That covers them. So I wrote here, are you mad? Because you should be really mad. Oh, I got mad. there already. Yeah, he, he is mad. Mission accomplished. <laughs> fucking annoyed. All right. This was especially important as we touched on in Death Row is effed up. The fact that prosecutors aren't held accountable for their actions. They have no fear of repercussions. They have immunity. But under the RJA, they had to testify to their actions. It's a small step towards holding them accountable, which would be incredible because there's not a lot of forward momentum in this area. So as we mentioned earlier, on August 26th and 27th of this year, 2019, a group of attorneys from across the state and the nation argued before the North Carolina Supreme Court on behalf of the cases of six men and women who were on death row who have uncovered compelling proof that their sentences were poisoned by racial discrimination. Cassandra Stubbs told a reporter for the NCC ADP, Quote, everyone who's filed a Racial Justice Act case is entitled to a hearing on their Racial Justice Act claims. This is because there was a previous case that was decided after the Civil War. Cassandra said it was a case called... Are you ready for this, Keith? Yeah. Keith? Yes. The case was called Keith. Oh, hi. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very good name for a case. (laughs) So Cassandra said that under Keith, the North Carolina Supreme Court said, because of what's called due process, the constitutional right to fairness after, in those cases, a war criminal who had killed and massacred boys and adult men ages 13 to 60, he was given amnesty. What, his name was Keith? Mm -hmm. Oh, so I'm a fucking douche. But the law is good. Yeah. So hang in there. Yeah, but the Keith is a shitbag. It's the Keith. We're talking about the Keith law. We're not talking about the man it was named after. Yeah, that's okay. And we are talking about the man it was named after, but... Big picture, though. So he was given a defense by the North Carolina legislature. Cassandra said that under Keith, the North Carolina Supreme Court said, because of what's called due process, the constitutional right to fairness, in those cases, a war criminal, he was given amnesty. He was given a defense by the North Carolina legislature. A few years later, the North Carolina legislature came in and repealed that act. And Colonel Keith tried to invoke the defense that had been given to him by the legislature. And the North Carolina Supreme Court said he's entitled to it. He was entitled to it. The repeal cannot take that away. So you see where we're building towards here. And so the question now for these death row prisoners who have proven racial bias in their cases is, will the same law that protected Confederate soldiers and has never been overturned be applied to protect these cases as well? Right. The RJA. Yeah. Like, I think it would be so ironic if these racist motherfuckers. Not surprising, though. Not surprising. Which is... 
No, no, but this law is because of Confederate oh, I see asshole what you're dude. Yeah. So it would be ironic if that rule was applied to... <laughs> he wants to change his name. <laughs> yes. Keith's going to have a cucumber because he's upset. <laughs> is that a sad cucumber? He's distancing himself from the microphone. <laughs> Fair. Okay. As far as we can tell, the court will rule on all of this at some point. We don't know when. Hmm. There's no date set. There's no hurry. So according to the NCC ADP, the outcome could affect nearly 150 other prisoners hmm. who petitioned under the Racial Justice Act, but were never given their day in court. Well, that's why they're not bringing it up, because then it opens up a can of worms. Right. So just keep it in a holding pattern for as long as possible. Shit's getting full under that rug, boys mm-hmm. and girls. Lawyers for those prisoners who'd filed claims said the law might now be gone, but they still should have a chance to prove that their client's punishment was racially motivated. So 150 other prisoners. Right. Like, that's not a small number. No. Yeah. Remember how we told you that there hasn't been an execution in North Carolina since 2006? Oh, is that changing? Apparently, there's a group of former judges, prosecutors, and law enforcement officials who have an even more ambitious hope for the Racial Justice Act and its outcome. They have this ambitious hope that the court will use the case as an opportunity to strike down capital punishment in the state altogether. Hmm. We don't know if that will ever happen, but there are people who are attempting to change that. Which would be pretty huge. Just think, if out of all of this, some good could happen. Yeah, that would be amazing. Yeah. So we found this quote that was on the NCC ADP's website that taps into the sentiment that's behind this hope. And the quote says, The more you know about the defendant, the less likely you are to support his or her execution. The more you know about the criminal justice system, the less likely you are to support anyone's execution. Yeah. Which I feel like surmises our entire podcast. I mean, I know not every part of the podcast has been in relation to capital cases per se, but it still shines a light on how corrupt the justice system Mm -hmm. is in in general. Well, because man is flawed. It's true, though, because like once you actually add the human element back into it, when you get to know the person beyond Mm -hmm. just like the black and white paper of like, this is the the person's case and their story or whatever, it changes things. Yeah. Because we all can relate to each other on a human level. Well, and that's what Alan Gell said in the the Death Row episode that we did. Mm -hmm. He said something to the effect of you have to believe that we are a monster in order to put us to death. So, yeah. So, as you've heard time and time again in this podcast, there's a lot to learn from the many mistakes, mishaps, and flat-out exposure of corruption, and therefore a ton of room for improvement throughout the entire system. Fortunately, there are some other goodwill people who are scrutinizing some of these areas in an effort to enact change. So, I found another really incredible article from the Washington Post. It's actually a series of articles. This guy named Radley Balco, he is an opinion writer for the Washington Post. And this summer, in addition to following what was going on with the Racial Justice Act, I've also been following this incredible series. In the series, he sought solutions from those who work in the areas of law, science, and forensics. He sent an inquiry to 33 people, 14 of whom were willing to email answers to a set of six questions. That's a lot of numbers, but basically 14 people responded to him and he had six questions. He described these experts as people who could all be called critics of the way forensics are used in criminal cases today. Just basically like taking a poll from these people about their opinion on certain aspects of forensics. I feel like it's not dissimilar to the Forensic Science Commission in New York. Yeah. 
Okay, so Bradley wrote that the legal system is too reluctant to revisit and correct old cases affected by these problems. That was something that I brought up earlier and I think in other episodes, but the idea of going back and looking at cases like say DNA now is available and prior to that we used a different science. I would want to go back through every single one of the cases where we use the different science and apply the DNA to it. Right. To make sure that the outcomes are more accurate. Right. That's my idealistic thought on the system. But you can also see why they don't want to do that because even with money, yes, but also I'd say a fair amount of the cases they knew like, oh, we barely got that one by. Let's not let's not revisit this case because our fucking shitty work the first time is going to come to light. Right. Let alone the new science. Right. That's so. totally possible. I mean, I feel like it has to do with money, though. I mean, yeah. I feel like money garbage resources. people know they're garbage people. Yeah. yeah. I, you know what? Actually, I don't agree with that. I just said that I agreed. I disagree with myself agreeing with you. You think garbage people are um, in denial that are not self-aware? Correct. I feel like Dwayne Deaver mm. was very, very righteous. And he believed what he was doing was the right thing. Mm. That's true. That's a good point. Okay, so... What is good is within the past 10 years, there have been attempts at correcting some of the issues with regards to forensic science. And perhaps that's in response to the National Academy of Sciences comprehensive report from 2009 that we've cited numerous times in this podcast. And I've said it in a Minnesota accent and a not Minnesota accent. (laughs) Perhaps it's in response to the number of labs that have come under public scrutiny throughout the United States. In fact, Bradley notes in his series that in 2013, Congress and the Obama administration responded to these reports by creating the National Commission on Forensic Science, a panel of lawyers and scientists charged with coming up with standards and protocols in this field, which is fucking fabulous. That's something that you want at a federal level, in my opinion. Of course. But and it should have been there a uh, hundred years ago. Correct. But wait for it. Oh, see. <laughs> there goes fucking your sprinkle. sprinkle. God damn it. My fucking boring Sunday now with no sprinkles. Man, ice cream is ice cream. So, of course, and possibly predictably, the Trump administration. Oh. Say no more, right? <laughs> oh, I am on such overload. Then with fucking shenanigans. Oh, my God. Yeah. The Trump administration then allowed the commission's charter to expire in April of 2017. So, great job, team. Probably because he didn't understand what was happening. No, it was literally probably because he was like, oh, Obama did this? Let me undo it. That's what I think. A hundred percent. He was like, he's been on a, this rampage. And then, the like, Jeff Sessions, which is, like, very anti-forensic science yeah. for some weird fucking reason. Racist Keebler elf. Yeah. That's offending Keepler. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> Sponsor us. <laughs> Jeff Sessions, fuck Please. you. So maybe one of the biggest reforms we could have in forensic science is getting rid of Trump. Yeah. Science, science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Jess is dancing. <laughs> like one of those things outside of a car dealership. One of the, like, <laughs> blows up there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So, Radley found, as we have in speaking with our experts, that the one resounding answer that most of his experts suggested for reform is the exact idea that the NAS report suggested in 2009, that all forensic labs become independent of police and prosecutors. No shit. Yeah. Which is perhaps easier said than done. Why? In speaking with our experts, there are potential issues with this. 
police and prosecutors don't want to give up these aces they have up their sleeves. Yeah, exactly. After all, they are provided these experts at little to no cost to them, who help sometimes actively in convictions. In fact, Bradley found that most of the people he'd reached out to agreed that if we're going to continue with the current system, defense lawyers should at least be given the same amount of money to hire experts as the prosecution, or at least enough money to hire their own competent experts. Yeah, like to even the playing field a little bit. Absolutely. Well, justice is supposed to be blind. I mean... And going back to what Chris said, remember, I think we may have mentioned this earlier in the podcast, but, you know, the scales are not balanced. Right. So this is a very clear example nope. of that being a, a very crooked scale. So forensic pathologist Judy Melanick told Radley, local public defender offices need to be funded at the same level as prosecutors are, and they must be given equal access to all forensic evidence. Duh. Why is that even something that we need to discuss? Right. <sighs> She also suggested, and I totally agree, change the laws to allow defendants to appeal their convictions if scientific advances indicate that they were wrongfully convicted based on faulty scientific testimony. Again, why is this something we need to discuss? It's ridiculous. In his second question to the experts, Radley discussed the fact that many different fields of forensics have come under attack in recent years, including bloodstain pattern analysis, hair fiber analysis, ballistics testing, and fingerprint analysis. Even outside of forensics, there's long been research showing that eyewitness testimony is far less reliable than most people think and that juries give them way too much consideration. Think about the eyewitnesses in Alan Gell's case where the date got changed or the date needed to be changed so the cops re-interviewed them and they were like oh well maybe I didn't see him on that day. Yeah. So many of the experts suggested that reform should include adopting quote the junk science writ which is a law that provides an opening to appeal for those convicted with expert testimony that was later discredited by the scientific community. Texas and California have both passed such a law. Lawmakers in Virginia recently rejected the idea. Which is astounding to me. So if bloodstain pattern analysis was considered junk science, no one would bother to go back and look at those old cases that use the science. Mm -hmm. Because it would be easy to assume that nothing went awry since it was junk science. But if no one decided to go back to look at those old cases, we wouldn't have a podcast. And that right. would be sad. <laughs> Bloodstain pattern analysis is an interpretive science, as we've discussed. And in the 2009 report from the National Academy of Sciences, they would seem to agree, criticizing it as being, quote, more subjective than scientific. Insert science, science, woot, woot here. <laughs> but there are strides being made in this field using something that seems pretty sciencey called fluid dynamics and physics. While this is a step in the right direction, we hope, the thing is, in our podcast, we investigated a crime lab full of non-scientists. We spoke with our buddy Marilyn, who's an actual scientist and an expert in bloodstain pattern analysis. She worked on many of the cases we covered in the season, and she also assisted with the audit. She did the science, and she helped to right the wrongs made by non-scientists. Because the reality is, if an interpretive science is done by a non-scientist, you're not going to get a good factual result. And we can't always expect Marilyn to come swooping in and fixing everyone's fuck-ups. A woman named Sandra Guerra Thompson is a law professor and the director of the Criminal Justice Institute at the University of Houston Law Center. She's also a founding member of the board of directors of the Houston Forensic Science Center, which we which mentioned we, earlier. Yeah. yeah. And this is important because the crime lab in Houston was once affiliated with the police. So, of course, it went through a huge scandal similar to the North Carolina SBI crime lab. Hmm. So sensing a pattern here. Mm hmm. The difference, though, is the response to the scandal. After the scandal, the Houston Police Department Crime Lab was replaced by the Forensic Center, which is an independent lab. Hmm. So, you know, 
her recommendations hold a lot of weight. Very dissimilar to what North Carolina is doing. Yeah, so what we're talking about, like, feel like they're waving their hand over here and like something else is going on over here. And it seems like they were trying to do some reforms, but the biggest reform they could have done was make an independent lab. Right. And that's what Houston did. So. Yay, Houston. Well done. Right? I know. You don't have a problem. Oh, huh. (laughs) Good one. Sandra told Radley, Texas has also created a uniquely influential forensic science commission that in 2016 effectively rendered one type of junk science, bite mark evidence, inadmissible. These new developments create judicial awareness about forensic disciplines that have proven to be unreliable. This awareness, in turn, should make trial judges more willing to revisit past precedents, like what Priya had said earlier, when considering whether to admit forensic evidence in the face of a well-reasoned defense objection. The law, like science, does evolve and change. Sandra also told Radley that there have been studies showing that the more information a forensic analyst gets from law enforcement officials, the more likely they are to produce a false positive. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Good scientists know that cognitive bias is a persistent threat to sound research, and these good scientists take precautions such as double-blind testing to keep it from corrupting their work. So this is something I never really thought about, but it was actually brought up by a number of Radley's experts as something that would benefit labs. A case manager. A few episodes back, I brought up that to this day, lab analysts receive information about the person related to the evidence they're testing. Race was included in this, and the three of us were equally astounded. Why on earth would you need to know a person's race when testing fluids? You don't. No. But how are we going to convict innocent people if we do that? Good question. Precisely. We should do a podcast about that. Oh, good idea. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait. (laughs) Apparently, this kind of information is doled out to analysts in labs across the country. And of course, some forensic scientists might need extra information on whatever they're testing, but some may not. So that's where a case manager or case handler would come in. As Radley's experts describe this role, this person could be the go-between from law enforcement to the scientist. This person would have a science background, but would not perform any scientific testing in that lab. This person could read the case and decide what information needs to be distributed to the scientist, since each case and each scientist might have differing needs. However, my favorite suggestion for reform from this article was from a woman named Barbara A. Spellman, a professor of law and former, I think she doesn't do this anymore, professor of psychology from the University of Virginia. It's likely that her expertise in psychology and specifically decision making led her to be able to make this sort of suggestion, seemingly off the cuff. She said, to every case for which there is forensic evidence, you could assign three professional forensic experts. They would examine the evidence together, but by lottery. One would be the consultant to the plaintiff, one to the defendant, and one would be the witness at the trial. The consultants would give information about content and strategy for questioning the expert witness. The parties could, of course, hire their own experts to give them such advice as well, but only the court-assigned expert would testify. I really like that idea. Yeah. Uh, that That isn't... Did you get that? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay. And then just mix it. It's like a lottery, so you yeah. don't know. So the three of us would look at a case. Yeah. And... It's cool. We wouldn't know which one of us was going to testify. We wouldn't know... Mm-hmm. So I feel like that would eliminate a lot of bias. Yeah, that's a creative. It could, yeah. So Radley mentioned in his series that a few panelists cited the Houston Forensic Science Center as the ideal model of a science-driven, truly independent crime lab. Okay, we're going to circle back to Sandra's full suggestions of reform. The Houston Forensic Science Center has 
actually created a client services case management division to receive evidence from law enforcement. So they already have the case manager. Okay. Case managers at that lab decide what information analysts need for testing and what evidence is irrelevant. They convey information to analysts on a need-to-know basis. She continues, in this way, case managers can shield analysts from information that has the potential to introduce cognitive bias. Sandra suggests lab transparency because she says forensic laboratories, they process evidence in order to produce information. As we move forward in an attempt to prevent scandals and wrongful convictions, policymakers should demand transparency by forensic labs. The labs should post critical documents on their websites, including accreditation certificates, standard operating procedures for each discipline, validation studies, corrective action reports, budget information, Mm -hmm. and statistics on testing requests, turnaround times, and backlogs. The public has a right to this information and should not have to file public information requests to get it. So this circles back to what I was talking about when I went to the North Carolina website. How they don't have any of that available. Right. But they did. They used to. That's why I find it so confounding that like their information is changing, the way that they give it out is changing, and I find it really concerning. Yeah, because they're like, oh, stop giving people all the information they need to point out all the shit we do wrong. <laughs> yeah. It just yeah. makes them look guilty. It really of does. Of something, whatever what yeah. that may be. You know, we don't know. Sandra predictably suggests independent labs, like across the board, but interestingly enough, not just for eliminating bias. In her experience, she says, I have learned that lab independence makes the organization more agile in terms of setting priorities and hiring. Independence enables the lab to be transparent without the need to get approval from law enforcement authorities. And it also eliminates the appearance of pro-police bias. Independence puts the lab on par with other critical stakeholders in the criminal justice system so that it can be more responsive to law enforcement victims and the defense bar. So it gets rid of the red tape. Yeah. Essentially. Crime scene units are called into action when serious crimes occur, such as murders and officer-involved shootings. They collect evidence for testing in crime labs and document crime scenes. It is imperative that they follow specific scientific protocols in handling evidence. And I've come to appreciate, this is what she's saying, the importance of having civilians, not law enforcement, working in these positions. In Houston, we no longer employ police officers to collect evidence in major cases. This work is now done by an accredited crime scene unit that is a division of the laboratory. It is especially important for restoring the public's trust in the integrity of investigations of officer-involved shootings that the individuals gathering the evidence have scientific training and are not law enforcement personnel. And on top of this, Marilyn has told me repeatedly that what she really wants, what she really, really wants, is scientists at crime scenes. Nice. So finally, another of Radley's experts includes our friend Fred Whitehurst, who I was fortunate enough to interview earlier this year. He's a fascinating man with a fascinating story, but I spoke with him at length about his personal experience with the FBI Forensic Lab. That's the Federal Bureau of Investigation Crime Lab. I knew that one. That acronym. FBI. (laughs) Good job. One out of a (laughs) hundred. So there was a scandal there and he was the whistleblower in the lab. And ultimately he turned that experience into an actual organization to help whistleblowers do what they need to do. So since there's a lot of whistleblowing going on in the news these days, my super hot take is snitches should not get stitches. Snitches 
should actually be protected at all costs, and especially in labs. We've talked about Asgard Lab, but they had reporting protocols that involved using your own name, handwriting your complaint, oh, and generally doing everything possible to basically ensure that no one tattles. That's not a good way to run anything, let alone a lab oversight agency. Like, we're taught on the playground that tattling is bad, but it's only bad for the person who gets in trouble. So, like, as a general reform for all of us, all humans, let's make whistleblowing on shitty people with shitty policies or practices an okay thing across the board. Yeah. Thanks for that PSA. <laughs> Free essay? Welcome to my TED Talk. Whoa. How did you not think of this? What? It's That's your pre-SA. <laughs> oh my God. You're Pri- welcome. brain just exploded everywhere. <laughs> I died. Super random about this Fred Whitehurst is he was recommended to me by another one of our experts. And when I was on the call with him, he was talking about his experience in D.C. and in the FBI. And I just randomly asked if he happened to know my uncle who worked in D.C. in law enforcement at that time. And he knew my uncle and he's currently working with him right now. Small world, yeah. I remember when that happened. It's so random. So, yeah, they're working on a project together right now. So, Bradley's experts include Fred and a gentleman named John Lentini, who is described as an arson fire expert. Both were in complete agreement, suggesting that our justice system should hold analysts accountable if their expert opinions, their science, science, woo woo, <laughs> led to a wrongful conviction. Mm-hmm. And we sort of talked about that earlier, I think. Yeah. So John Lentini went further and also mentioned that prosecutors should be held accountable for intentional Brady violations. So as I said, we were going to be circling back to that today. As of this writing, we have not received any information on how so many of the cases we've covered had obvious Brady violations. And just in case folks have forgotten, this is where a prosecutor is required to hand over any and all evidence that could potentially exonerate the accused. So something very similar. God forbid, why would you want to hand over that information? (laughs) Right. It's definitely something that has bothered us deeply here at Fucked Up. And as John Lentini told Radley, and perhaps this answers some of it, he wants the court to reverse the Connick versus Thompson decision so that prosecutors could be held liable in Brady violations. Oh, okay. So I'm all for prosecutors being held liable for their wrongdoings. I had no idea what the Connick versus Thompson decision was, so I looked it up. Harry Connick? Apparently, the conic in this is Harry Connick Sr. Oh, shit. I was being sarcastic. The father of Harry Connick Jr. And the Thompson in this case was a man named John Thompson, who in the 80s was charged with another guy for killing someone. And in this case, a fucking lot of fuckery happened, including Connick allegedly withholding evidence that blood that was not the victim's was found on or around the body. And that blood did not match John's blood. Hmm. So John was innocent. And John sued and won $14 million, which is a million for each year he was wrongfully imprisoned. But you know, no one liked that. And nothing I've read suggests this, but my theory is that John was a black man in Louisiana who was a shining example of a bunch of white prosecutors fucking up. Sing about that, Junior. So, (laughs) So his win was appealed. And the case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And despite popular opinion that there was an awful lot of shenanigans in that case, the Supreme Court ruled in Harry Connick Sr.'s favor. Oh, come on. And, well, prosecutors can legally withhold Brady materials. How is that? (laughs) I'm going high-pitched. Why? What was the reasoning? 
I think that it was decided five to four. So there were four dissents, but I don't know why the five voted the way that they did. However, Ruth Bader Ginsburg dissented in this case. Yes, she did. Go RBG. Yep. And she wrote about this. She was really fucking pissed off about this. So I don't know why it happened, but I can only imagine that it was Scalia and... Ugh. We mentioned a few times that, for the most part, prosecutors enjoy an almost immunity when it comes to wrongdoing. They're immune from civil cases, and they're rarely disciplined in cases of misconduct. There was an article written in March of 2019 titled One Simple Way to Hold Bad Prosecutors Accountable, which was published in The Appeal by Jeff Adachi and Peter Colloway. They were looking into the lack of accountability for prosecutors in California and a few other states. Like, this is a real fucking problem across our entire country. The article mentions that the California State Bar, who are charged with ensuring law being practiced to high standards to protect the public, while this entity rarely investigates prosecutors, of course. It's possible, they mentioned, that there is a lack of resources to investigate claims of misconduct, which, you know, is pretty shitty for the people who find themselves being charged with crimes that they possibly didn't commit by said prosecutors. They sure seem to find the money when they they want to appeal a, a verdict they don't like. Yep. Anyway. The authors of the article looked at the study that found in California from 1997 to 2009, there were 707 instances where a judge found that a prosecutor committed misconduct. Only six of those, less than 1%, resulted in a public sanction by the state bar. So, gold stars for everyone. Yeah, a sanction doesn't mean that, like, they get in a whole lot of trouble. It's just like a slap on the wrist. Right. This problem isn't isolated to California, though. In fact, in Massachusetts, as of April 2016, only two prosecutors have been publicly disciplined since 1980, despite the at least 142 instances over that same period where a judge reversed a guilty verdict or dismissed charges based on a prosecutor's misconduct. In contrast, over 1,400 non-prosecutors have been disciplined in Massachusetts over roughly the last 15 years. And in Louisiana, the first professional sanction against a prosecutor didn't occur until 2005. So it seems plausible that there could be a systemic issue with prosecutors being able to get away with misconduct. A couple of episodes ago, we brought this up because an amazing New York defense attorney who was on the State Forensic Commission, Marvin Schechter, said that in the spring of 2019, Governor Andrew Cuomo approved this bill to set up the nation's first independent commission to investigate reports of misconduct by prosecutors. A 2018 article in the New York Times outlines the commission's purpose as, quote, to serve as a disciplinary entity designed to review complaints of prosecutorial misconduct in New York State. The commission will enforce the obligation of prosecutors to observe acceptable standards of conduct and to establish reasonable accountability for the conduct of prosecutors during the performance of their functions, powers, and duties as prosecutors. Which I just feel like it's so ridiculous that we even need this in the first place. Mm -hmm. To be like, make sure you do your job right. Right. You know, and it's like, give me a fucking break. The bill was supported by many black and Latino Democrats who saw it as an answer to systemic racism. The commission will be comprised of 11 people who can investigate any of the state's 62 district attorneys to determine whether their conduct is unprofessional, unethical, or unlawful. They'll be able to conduct hearings, compel witnesses to testify, issue subpoenas, and request any records or materials that it deems relevant to an investigation. They'll also be able to look into the misconduct by assistant district attorneys. Can't say we're surprised that prosecutors hate this. Marvin had mentioned that prosecutors were fighting it tooth and nail, calling it unconstitutional. How is being held? What? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How dare you try and make me be honest and do my job without cheating? (laughs) No, it's unconstitutional. (laughs) Fuck off. (laughs) 
But they're actually fighting it and filed suit against it, literally, because they're saying it's unconstitutional. How is it unconstitutional? It's What's the logic? It's not. So this is what they had to say. Oh, here we go. According to the New York Times, the president of the District Attorney's Association of the State of New York, P. David Soros, said, quote, this flawed... His name's probably Peter, like Dwayne. It's probably Dwayne. Oh, my God. It's fucking Dwayne Deaver with, like, a mustache. Oh, my God. (laughs) P. David Soros said, quote, this flawed and unconstitutional bill will unnecessarily and detrimentally interfere with the fundamental duties of our prosecutors and will not bring about any meaningful oversight. Obviously, he's also a district attorney and needs to call a ambulance. Yeah. <laughs> Wah! Wah! I want that to Wah! be my ringtone. <laughs> it's just P. David Soros on loop. <laughs> AKA. How dare you not let me break the law? <laughs> Rude. And then he actually said, quote, the interference will breed more public corruption and distrust of our public officials. That makes no sense. Mm-hmm. It, it's it holding you accountable from being a piece of shit. You're being exposed mm-hmm. for your lies and your corruption. That's the thing. Yeah. Like, so, yes, if you're doing shady shit and people find out about it, of course they're going to distrust It's not going to lead to more corruption. It's just going to expose all the corruption you've been doing this whole time. Right. Mm-hmm. It goes back to like what I There's was There's a simple solve to this. Don't be a piece of shit. <laughs> P. Dwayne Schwebo, whatever your fucking name is. I feel like it kind of goes back to the whistleblower thing where Mm. I really feel like the reason people don't like whistleblowers or they don't like tattlers is because they don't want to get in trouble. And it's like, this is the exact same fucking thing. And I feel like it's the same with the lab and it's the same. People are just scared to get in trouble. And it's like, what were your parents doing to not teach you to be accountable? And like getting in trouble is not that big a deal. You were getting ribbons for participation. Yeah. Yeah. We're not too sure how oversight into misconduct will breed more corruption, but we can safely say that many people have already had a huge distrust of public officials and oversight of those officials will actually help you. This misconduct, hiding of evidence, just like the North Carolina SBI crime lab, doing whatever it takes to win that case, is deep-seated in the prosecutorial mindset. And many times a win means getting a plea deal from the accused. The article in the appeal suggests that a prosecutor could approach the accused and tell them that there's an eyewitness who's got the accused dead to rights, which is terrifying. Even if the accused is innocent, we've all heard horror stories about wrongful convictions. Right. We even did a podcast about it. Mm-hmm. Welcome. Welcome. Hi. <laughs> I'm Priya Hubbard. I just support this. No. <laughs> oh, whoops. But maybe that eyewitness is a known habitual liar. The prosecutor knows this, but chooses to admit it. And this stuff happens. All the time. All the time. Yeah. So the prosecutor withholds the information that the eyewitness is a known liar. So this is a scenario that we're just Mm -hmm. kind of creating for you. It's totally possible that the accused doesn't want to risk going to trial when there's an eyewitness placing them at the scene of the crime. And again, even if you're an innocent person, if somebody's telling you this, a prosecutor's telling you this, it's overwhelmingly scary and intimidating. And even as I was writing this, I'm like, a person wouldn't do that. It's so ingrained into me that all prosecutors are the good guys. Like, nope. But it's weird that in my head, I can feel that resistance. It's so interesting that you believe that, though, especially after all, or that, like, you no, no, naturally... No, it's not that I'm believing it. It's that that is my initial to? instinct. 
And it takes a second for me to be like, wait, hang on a second. Mm -hmm. But it's my privilege as a white looking person to say that because I don't have a ton of fear when it comes to a cop pulling up behind me or being put through the system because I've not faced the threat of the system in the way that black and brown people in this country have. We've discussed all of this kind of shit throughout the entire podcast. But the point is, the prosecutor is incentivized to conduct themselves unethically and they're not held accountable, so there's nothing really stopping them from doing any of this unethical shit. The article talks about the dehumanizing aspect of this behavior, saying, quote, when people are accused of a crime, most of them former victims, they cease to be seen as people by our legal system and become merely criminals, which goes back to what Alan Gill said about how people have to see defendants as animals or monsters in order to justify putting them to death. If you only see the accused as criminals, it's easy to bend the rules a little or a lot. The article states, without plea bargaining, our criminal system could not process the nearly 11 million arrests that occur every year. So many trials would cause the system to collapse. And without misconduct, particularly in the form of hidden or late disclosed evidence, many fewer people would plead guilty. Prosecutors have a ton of power in the plea bargaining process because they decide what charges to bring and when and what evidence to disclose, as they're coercing 97% of criminal cases to be resolved without a trial. If we look at the other side, we vastly live in a culture that doesn't trust defense lawyers and refers to them as ambulance chasers. When I was speaking with Marvin Schechter, he mentioned that a lot of people ask him incredulously, how can you defend guilty people? And he responds with, how can I not defend innocent people? Which I absolutely loved. Yeah. Like it almost brought tears to my eyes. Yeah. I didn't cry. I'm not going to cry. Our system promises presumed innocent until proven guilty, but it's the defense attorneys who fight for that promise. Their clients, the exonerees, are the ones who get the broken promises. They were presumed guilty from the get, and even post-exoneration, they're still considered guilty. At the very least, they are owed a public apology by the people the public view as the good guys to give the exoneree a fighting chance at not being branded a convict. And if there's a public apology, there also must be a new promise to the victims or the survivors that they will do everything they can to bring the true criminal to justice. By remaining in the belief that the exoneree is guilty when a court of law deemed them innocent, it irreparably harms the exonerees and the victims and survivors. So we asked our experts if they had wish lists of reform that they'd like to see happen. On Chris Muma's list was restrictions or controls on the use of jailhouse informants. Think about how many of the cases that we've covered that have had jailhouse informants magically pop up to strengthen these cases. And in many of our cases, it turned out that they were lying. People in North Carolina noticed this, and the I Beverly Lake Jr. Fair Trial Act was put up for a vote. It included concerns about the reliability of jailhouse informants and suggested that no person should be convicted solely on the word of a jailhouse informant, that there must be other corroborated evidence. Hmm. But that bill was shot down. Of course it was. God forbid we have to prove our case. Yeah. But, you know, nationwide, it's probably a really good idea to regulate jailhouse informants and the information they're providing. Connecticut is actually doing work in this arena, and according to the Hartford Current, they wrote, the new rules include requiring pretrial hearings on whether prisoners' testimony should be allowed and forcing prosecutors to disclose any deals with informants as well as their history of testifying in other cases. Democrat Governor Ned Lamont signed a wide-ranging bill in July that will create the nation's first statewide system to track the use of jailhouse informants, including any benefits offered in exchange for their testimony. That's great. Well, that's Which good. is kind of cool because, yeah. like, who... I. I mean, who would ever think to track that and just see, like, hey, are there patterns here? Like, right. are there red flags we should be looking out for? I wonder if that'll be, like, 
given to the public. Mm, probably not if it's an informant. Oh, yeah, because you don't want... You've got to protect their identity. Right. But I wonder if they could do it anonymously. Like, they have a number assigned to them. So it's like... Oh, oh. I see. Oh, that, yeah. Yeah. That could be cool. Just so that the public can know that jailhouse informants were used in all of these cases. Yeah. And it was the same one, if it's the same number. Yeah. California, Connecticut, Oklahoma, and Utah require juries to be given instructions to scrutinize jailhouse informants' testimony. So there are states that are trying to change the way that we deal with jailhouse informants. But this all seems pretty standard, common sense shit. Why can't this be federal? Right. It seems like any of these things are like something if you just went to like, a, you know, a kindergarten class. But like, do you think it's important that people tell the truth? Yes. Yeah. Like it all seems like super basic. Hi, buddy. Newman's coming to hang out. Mm-hmm. He's like, Free chair. He wants to be in the podcast. Yeah. Wait, get away from my wine. <laughs> Scotch. Get out of here. <laughs> also on Chris's reform wish list was a more cooperative post-conviction review and resolution process. And finally, she wished for something we've brought up in this episode as well as earlier ones, which is repercussions for prosecutorial misconduct. And interestingly enough, this item was on a few of our experts lists, which we'll get into, and also pretty high on the list for a number of experts that Radley Balco, the opinion writer for the Washington Post we mentioned earlier, spoke with for his incredible series about reform in forensic science. So this is what a couple more of our experts, Kim Cook and Sandra Westerville, are wishing for. Given the damage caused to a person's life and that of his or her family by a wrongful conviction and incarceration, they believe the state owns the responsibility for helping exonerees rebuild their lives post-exoneration. Mm-hmm. They suggest the following to name a few. Reparations for the exonerated person and his or her family compensation within a reasonable time period upon release. So, for example, 60 days or less expungement of the crimes for which they were wrongfully convicted at the system's expense immediately upon release. Which is what, when we talked about it, that's what we all presumed happened. Right. Automatically, like, you get out. So I feel like I like that one quite a lot. Didn't they have to, like, plea for their reason to be, like... um, They have to prove that they're um, innocent. No, 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 but once they're released... Well, because they couldn't go to like a halfway house or anything like that because they weren't actually convicted of anything anymore. Right. But when they're, when they're, if you're exonerated and you're released, it's like in order to get it off your record, you had to like plea to the governor or whoever to get it off your record. To get it expunged? Yeah. That's getting pardoned. Yes, pardoned. That's the word. Yeah. So to get expunged, it takes like three or four years. Right. For your record to be. Oh, so for three or four years, you can't get a job because you're still a felon. Oh, that's nice. Horrible. They also have on their list access to healthcare, which would include medical, dental, and mental health services, which we've talked about the importance of. Obviously, the first two are no brainers, but Mm -hmm. like the mental health aspect of it is huge and it's so undermined, I feel like, in the system. I would think anybody would be untrusting of a system that put them in prison for X number of years. I'd be afraid to trust anybody. 100%. We have mentioned this before, but New York has two social workers that work with mm. the Innocence Project. Right. Oh, yeah. And that it would be great to be able to find funding to get that in Innocence Projects or organizations across the board. Right, because for all states. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would imagine those are the only people that these, you know, newly innocent people would trust. Right. But to have maybe like a social worker or somebody that's like assigned to them that could be like that built-in support system to help them get back on their like feet. Like a case manager almost. Right. So having access to mental health and medical and dental, like, who knows what's been going on, like, with your upkeep on your physical body in prison. Yeah. Like, I'm sure that nutrition is not fantastic in Mm -hmm. prison. 
and definitely medical care is not fantastic mm -hmm. and yeah. dental care is hard. I believe you have to be taken. I think I learned this on ear hustle, but for dental procedures, you have to be taken out of the prison to go mm. get it done. Mm. Okay. So also on their list is free education and training for employment, which would include assistance in finding employment yeah. as well as an adjustment to social security to try to account for the lost time while they've been wrongfully incarcerated. Right. Mm -hmm. They're not accruing anything. So they're not working full time. Right. They also ask that officials and advocates remember the damage done to the survivors of the original crime at the heart of the wrongful conviction case and or the family members. A few suggestions for reparations that may assist in their healing would include time to ask questions about how this happened, answers to be provided by the judicial body overturning the conviction, or someone in a position of authority who does not continue to maintain the exoneries guilt. So kind of like helping to give them closure, I guess, or at least like give them a dialogue or something that maybe will help them in their own healing process. Yeah. yeah. Which I feel like is great to look beyond that. That's very forward thinking. It's mm -hmm. very... We probably have a version of PTSD, I'd imagine. For sure. They also list that they'd like an opportunity to meet the exonerated person if both exoneree and survivor agree and discuss how they were both impacted by the wrongful conviction, relying on restorative justice techniques for a mediated dialogue. Also on the list is financial compensation to assist with losses incurred resulting from the wrongful conviction, as well as access to health care to address emotional trauma, physical trauma, and ongoing impact stemming from the wrongful conviction process. Extension of the statute of limitations in rape and sexual assault cases, which allow the original crime victim to access the justice system after an exoneration to identify the actual perpetrator. And I would go beyond that and say that evidence that is stored in these assault cases should be, what am yeah. I trying to say, like preserved, preserved for a long, yes. long time. Yes. Especially given like how it almost seems like over the last few years, especially as people as we're having very high profile cases of these types of incidents where people are starting to learn how it's not so easy and straightforward for victims to come forward and mm -hmm. speak out. So like mm -hmm. knowing that, like there should be some flexibility in the law to help protect these people. And like if they do choose to come out 20 years later or however, you know, because it's not as easy as being like, okay, well, it just happened and now I'm ready to talk about it. Right. Some people don't want to talk about it or they're scared or whatever. In terms of people who report sexual assault, it is really easy to believe people. And I just wanted to put this out here because it's really important to me. It's easy to believe people who have been, who are reporting their assault or their rape or whatever, because the statistics support it. Stanford did a study, 92% to 98% of people who report a rape or an assault are verified to be telling the truth. Well, um, it's also okay to not come forward, too, of course. by the way. If you yeah. do not feel safe yeah. in doing so, it is 100% okay. And yep. nobody should ever shame someone for... No. Yeah, of course. People that do that have not been through that experience. And they don't understand that. Mm -hmm. And they think they're coming from a good place, but that's not always the case. Right. All right, so, so that was a little sidebar there. A little sidebar. Okay. Another one of our amazing experts, Marilyn Miller, said she'd like to see the adoption of the standards set by the Organization of Scientific Area Committees for Forensic Science, also known as OSACs. And according to their site, they're the kind of entity that sets common sense standards for forensic science, including minimum requirements, best practices, standard protocols, and other guidance to help ensure that the results of the forensic analysis are reliable and reproducible. She'd also like to see the accreditation of forensic science programs in higher education, which is something that none of us had ever thought of. That makes sense. 
And just so we're not so focused on what we're lacking and feeling like we have an insurmountable mountain of reform ahead, we thought it may be good to reflect on some of the things that we're grateful for. And Marilyn got back to us with some of the reforms that she's seen that she's happy about, starting with the standards set by OSACs. But she's also grateful for lawyers who understand the power of forensic science done properly and for 25 years of cool students. So that is really cute. I bet she'd be a really cool professor. I would oh love to God. do a class with her. Yeah. And she's listening to the episodes. Hi, so. Marilyn. Hi, Marilyn. Hey. Thanks for helping us. Yes. Oh, my God. Thank Big you. thank you. She is fucking amazing. I absolutely yeah. adore her. All right. So I got some okay. sad news. <clears throat> oh, no. This is officially our last effed up case or fucked up case. So sob. But here we go. On August 19th, 2010, one day after the audit was released publicly, the News and Observer stated the full impact of the disclosure will reverberate for years to come as prosecutors and defense attorneys re-examine cases as much as two decades old to figure out whether these errors robbed defendants of justice. Some of the injustices can be addressed as attorneys bring old cases back to court. Chris Moma is still dealing with the reverberations today. We spoke in episode two about the full vetting process of the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence. An individual's case must pass a series of rigorous tests. In fact, the center rejects 95% of the cases that come across their desks. So when Chris takes on a case, that means there is not just credible evidence that the individual could be innocent. It seems to mean the individual is innocent. And when Chris takes on a case, she eats, lives, and breathes that case. She told us numerous stories about how this work has affected her family life. And one of our favorite stories is when Chris was working on Greg Taylor's case and she was dedicating her life to getting this man out of prison. This isn't the kind of work that Dolly Parton's saying about. It's not a nine to five job. And one particular member of her family felt a certain type of way about Chris's hours and decided to make it known. Chris told us that her daughter Madison printed out multiple pictures of Greg and replaced all of the pictures of herself with these pictures of Greg (laughs) to show her mom exactly how replaced she felt. (laughs) oh teenage angst (laughs) it's pretty good though (laughs) she's amazing i love that story i know it's so good we love that story pretty hard but anyway here's where we get into our final fucked up case so chris had been dealing with the nc sbi crime lab since about 2006 and as mentioned even today she's dealing with the repercussions because on may 5th 2008 a boater on the Catawba River in Mount Holly, North Carolina, called 911 after seeing a car that had run off an embankment and a body of a woman lying near it. Mount Holly police arrived and found the body of Ira Yarmolenko, a 20-year-old UNC Charlotte student lying dead next to her car. She had three ligatures tied around her neck, and about 100 yards down the embankment, there was a man named Mark Carver and his cousin Neil Casada, and they were fishing. DNA found on microscopic skin cells that were lifted from Ira's car matched, and that's in quotes, Mark. This is touch DNA, and it's not great, because say you're at a store and you're looking at scarves because you love scarves. I love scarves. Me too. Same. Keith, do you love scarves? I do. I have quite a few scarves. Same. See, so if you're shopping for a scarf and you pick one up, but it's not for you, so you put it back down. At that point in time, you leave a little bit of you behind. Right. Then someone else comes and picks it up, checking out the scarf, and a little of you gets transferred to them. Right. So they're now like walking down the street 
and they have a little bit of you on them. Right. They can touch something somewhere and leave a little bit of you on that. I think uh, I'm just going to start wearing gloves everywhere now. I just feel like we should all live in a bubble. Agreed. So basically, you're touching things. Other people touch it. It can get spread around. Yes. That is the theory behind touch DNA, as I understand it. There are other issues with it, like the size of the sample and the sensitivity of testing can lend itself to false positives. You know, no big deal. Whatever. <laughs> We're already dealing with all of that. Right. So it's no surprise that Mark and his cousin ended up charged with a poor young woman's murder. Mark and Neil were ultimately placed under house arrest, which has got to be stressful as fuck. And a murder charge hanging over one's head has got to bring one to a breaking point. In fact, the fucking day before Neil's trial, this is the cousin, mm-hmm. he was sitting at the breakfast table and then he had a heart attack. Oh, Jesus. And the heart attack killed him. I would argue being charged with murder is a more likely culprit in his death. It's got to be fucking yeah. stressful. Yeah. So as per all the usual shit, prosecutors offered Mark a deal because, of course, they did. He'd get four to eight years in prison, and as innocent men do, Mark turned down their generous offer. So the case went to trial. And just like with Greg Taylor's case, the defense attorneys thought the prosecution's case was super weak, so they didn't bother providing any evidence. The defense attorneys preferred to cross-examine that expert witness, and then they presumably also took a nap, just like in Greg Taylor's case where mm-hmm. his initial defense attorney took all the naps. Yep. Fucking rip. like, no defense is the best defense. Yep. So at this point, it's 2011, and George Good, Leslie Lincoln, Alan Gell, Greg Taylor, Daniel Green, Derek Allen, L.A. Armstrong, Daryl Hunt, and about 230 other cases have happened. And people like Desmond Keith Carter have been executed. But apparently, that's not enough to make a North Carolina defense attorney be diligent. So, if so the, the moral def- of the story is avoid North Carolina. They're defense attorneys. Hmm. Well, all of them. They're prosecutors. <laughs> yes, just avoid <laughs> So if the defense attorneys had bothered to ask around, they would have found out that a year prior, there'd been a publication with updated guidelines for, according to the center... This is a quote, interpretation and reporting of DNA mixtures that were relevant to the evidence presented at the trial. Had the DNA testing been reported at the trial, none of it would have been reporting as matching Mark. But instead, Mark Carver was found guilty in the first degree and sentenced to life without parole. Oof. One of the defense attorneys claims that he feels like he failed Mark. Oh, no shit, Sherlock. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, you can't like afterwards go, oh, my bad. Yeah. Right? Like, fucking pay attention, dude. Your job is to defend somebody. Defend them. Do a good job at the outset. Yeah. Yeah. And then maybe we don't have this stuff. Yeah. Okay. Chris Muma took on Mark's case in 2013. There have been a number of delays. And as we've learned, Lady Justice is slow as fuck. So the hearing began last spring. Oh, Jesus. Six years. And on April 8th, 2019, former SBI special agent Mark Booty testified. What's interesting about his testimony is that he spoke to the climate in the lab in 2010. Apparently, everyone was panicked about what had come out of the audit and media. Yet, there were still terrible people. And Booty told the court that inexplicably, inside the lab, agents were simply ignoring scientific advancements that could have helped Mark. The special agent told the court that we were trying to save our jobs. The lab was not focused on science at the time. Personally, we're just going to question if there was a time prior to 2010 when the lab was focused on science. Right. But okay, (laughs) Booty. Yeah. A couple of years prior to the trial... 
Chris told us about the link between Mark's case and Greg's, about the proximity of the victim's bodies to the suspects seems to be a main working theory for law enforcement. She told us Mark's case is another case we're working on right now, where a dead woman and a man fishing 100 yards downstream, that's close enough for us, must be a connection. Like in Greg's case, you have his truck that's stuck. It's close to a dead body, and that's it. Case closed. Yep. So on a personal note, it has been fun watching the headlines in North Carolina publications over the summer. Because in June of 2019, a judge set aside Mark's case, and he walked out of the courthouse a free man. Well, he's got an ankle monitor because he wasn't found not guilty. The charges weren't dropped. It's the same old fucking shit. He will likely have to go through a new trial. But maybe the justice system will right itself and they'll drop the charges. Hopefully. But while this is happy news, as with many of our other cases, this means that it's been nearly a decade and the police have not been investigating any other suspects. One of their suspects died of a heart attack and the other has been wrongfully imprisoned or under house arrest for nearly a decade. Presumably, Mark is the only suspect. So chances are they won't be investigating now either. Kind of same thing with Greg Taylor. Right. When he was exonerated, it was kind of like, Greg was our guy. Seems like it's the same thing here. Yep. So that basically means that the young woman who was murdered, her friends and her family, they will not get justice. But Mark is getting some justice and will get this new trial and Chris will prevail. It is interesting to think about the similarities between this case and Greg's. In both cases, the suspects were around 100 yards from the scene of the crimes. There's a spot of some substance on Greg's car. There's allegedly Mark's microscopic DNA on the victim's car. Cops locked in, the crime lab helped out, offers of plea deals and wrongful imprisonment. In fact, Chris said, and this is important, Mark is my Greg Taylor 2.0. And let's hope that means she'll get him exonerated. Exactly. Mm -hmm. What's potentially even more interesting is that it was Greg's case that sounded the alarm that something was wrong in that lab. The newspapers were reporting regularly on the lab. The audit was happening. That SBI agent even testified that it was basically chaos and that they weren't even really paying attention to science. So horrible. Yeah. It's terrible. Yeah. So the evidence that could have cleared Mark and his cousin... It was all swept up in all of the chaos inside that lab. So Chris said about this, it is kind of ironic in this case that the exoneration of my client may have led to the wrongful conviction of Mark Carver. Mm-hmm. So Greg Taylor right. back then yeah. created, I feel like Greg Taylor chaos. was like the butterfly. Yes. The chaos. That theory. flapped yeah. its wings yeah. and it resulted in the tornado mm-hmm. in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. In Radley Balko's series of articles in the Washington Post that we referenced earlier, one of his experts, Judy Melanick, a forensic pathologist, suggested to him, if the courts are following the laws placed before them by legislatures, then it's time to find legislatures who are serious about criminal justice reform and who are ready to pass laws that fund forensic labs and require the legal system to give the wrongfully convicted a second chance at overturning their unjust convictions Mm -hmm. and at seeking retribution. Oh, and also, something we sometimes forget, district attorneys are elected officials too. So, you know, the best advice we have for our listeners is to vote the effed up people out. Fucked up. Last episode, guys. <laughs> <We're done>. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, you know, from my perspective, the stories that you've told me have been infuriating and there are some happy endings for some people like Greg, Mm -hmm. but obviously there's still a lot of work that needs to be done because for every Greg that was exonerated and set free, there's 
dozens and dozens who are sitting there rotting in a cell that didn't do anything. So like when I agreed to do this with you guys, I didn't really know what the hell it was (laughs) to be totally honest. (laughs) And I, one, I also didn't know the stories and didn't know like all the work. So, you know, thank you to the two of you for sort of opening my eyes to a lot of things that are like horrible. So Keith, before we started recording today, we told you a little bit of what we're going to be doing in terms of like talking about our experts reform. You are somebody who has listened to the entire podcast. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything that you want to say that you feel like you really want this to be looked into after having listened to what we brought to you? I mean, they've all been, you know, a lot of the stuff has been very surprising. But the thing that's been the most surprising for me is that I don't understand how it's okay to cherry pick which evidence, you know, a prosecutor provides to like the defense team. Like if you're truly coming from a perspective of justice is blind, then none of that should matter. Like there should be like, here are the facts of the case. Let's discuss them and, you know, prove that somebody did something or didn't. Not like, well, if I give this piece of evidence, then that makes them look guiltier. But if I hold this, like that should not even enter into the equation. And anybody that sort of operates in that capacity should not be working in the justice system. Right. You know, that's sort of like my global, like it's bullshit. Going off of what you said, like, I don't feel like we treat the innocent. We don't treat people innocent until proven guilty. Mm -hmm. Is what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, I've seen so many documentaries on Netflix where it's just like, they're not even attempting to decide if the person did it or not. They're just like, oh, well, you're the suspect. So what stuff do we have to line up in what order to validate what we've already decided about you. Mm -hmm. So it's like they've got a conclusion. They're working towards that conclusion versus where's the evidence taking us? What conclusion do we reach from going through the evidence? Right. It's ass backwards. Even in headlines. Like I noticed that I'm more aware of it now. I catch myself if I see headlines like man arrested for X, Y, and Z. And it's like a horrific thing. And then I'm like, oh my God, this guy, he's the worst. And then I'm like, just because he's arrested for it doesn't necessarily mean that he did it. Oh, yeah. But it's like, I think we as humans, we we just believe what the information that's presented to us. For sure. And, and a lot of people think to, read the... Right. Or like maybe you read the first few sentences or you read the headline mm-hmm. or whatever. And so you just automatically have that idea that seed is planted, that that person is guilty. For sure. What is a reform that you would like to see happen based on doing this podcast? I think the biggest thing for me is having the prosecutors being held accountable because without that, I just, and even if the labs are independent, I think that would be a huge improvement, of course, but I just don't know that I, I feel very jaded in terms of how prosecutors can wield their power. Mm -hmm. And that makes me feel if I were ever entangled in some kind of a situation, I don't know that I would feel like the system had my back because Mm. prosecutors can do anything and never get punished for it. Right. That is scary to me. I totally agree with you on that. I feel like I've learned so fucking much in doing this podcast. One thing I did learn, I saw there was a guy who, maybe in Louisiana, told the cops who arrested him, he said, I want a lawyer, dog. So we all understand what that means. Yeah. He did not get a lawyer. And he tried to, I think he tried to sue because of that or something happened and the court decided because they saw the transcript of him asking for a lawyer dog. Uh, they thought it was a fucking canine. What? Yes. Yeah. So kidding me. 
Something that I learned behind the scenes of doing this podcast is you have to be really fucking clear in the way that you ask for a lawyer. And it's not as silly as I want a lawyer dog. It goes to like, even I might want a lawyer right now. You can't say that. You have to say, I'm invoking my right to counsel. You want to invoke your rights. And how does the average person know that? I don't know because a lot of times people have said, I think I might want to talk to a lawyer or they've been like, it sounds like it could be wishy-washy and fucked up things have happened. And so I feel like that is a really important thing that I would like to get out there. Ridiculous. But yeah, the prosecutor misconduct thing to me is horrible. a huge one. And I like the idea of having a system in place for when exonerees are released. To yes. have something, I, that's something even before the podcast that I thought should be a thing. But having learned more about how, like in reading that book by Sandra and Kim, it's just like, you see how bad it can be for these people when they're introduced back into society yeah. and they have no support system. All right. <laughs> Thank you for listening, everyone. Help us change the F Thank up you. Hope you learned some stuff. Because everything is terrible. <laughs> All right. We are so grateful to all of our listeners. I hope that we helped. You definitely did. Keith did not. I am useless. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm good at drinking wine. Yes. But we absolutely adore you. And we will try to figure out a way to sort of keep in touch via social media and whatnot. And send us anything that you find that may be effed up in your research as well. We'd love to hear from you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or anything that's good. If you find anything that yeah. is in line with reform or positive change, share it with us. We'd love to hear from you. Oh my God. I would be so happy yeah. to hear some happy news. And when we started this yeah, whole I need project. Some sprinkles on my Sunday because yeah, we knocked them all off. We knocked them all off. When we first started this project, it was because we were hoping to enact some level of change, mm-hmm. wherever that may lie on the scale, you know, of whether it's policy change, helping one person even mm-hmm. like, so anything that we can do that will help move the scale in any tiny bit, you know, is a victory for us. So 100%. thanks for being our supporters yeah. and for yeah. listening thanks and being for on this journey with us. And hopefully you can help make the world a better place. Yes. Yeah, you can. Vote. We do have yes. a lot of power, so let's research, it. research, research who you're going to vote for. Mm-hmm. Don't mm-hmm. just worry about the people at the top of the ticket. Yeah, true. Hopefully, you've enjoyed the podcast. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Science, science. Woo, woo. <laughs> <laughs>For the end of every episode, we highlighted organizations or people that were important to us and or our experts. If you have time or money to spare and would like to volunteer or donate to these organizations, they are North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence, Healing Justice Project, ACLU, Venice Arts, New York State Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, Virginia Commonwealth University, and North Carolina Advocates for Justice. We'll provide links for all of these on our Facebook page with our research links. You can find us on all platforms, Facebook, Insta, and Twitter at Effed Up Podcast. That's E-F-F-E-D-U-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. If you need to reach us via email, it's the same deal. Podcast at gmail.com. And finally, we don't like to shill for ourselves, but this podcast isn't about us. Fucked Up or Effed Up is about helping other people, but in order to do that, we need to get the word out. So if you have a moment to spare, please rate us on whatever app you use to listen to us. It will help us become more visible and help us elevate the voices 
of the victims and survivors who have been impacted. If you have more than a moment and want to help us get the word out, please tell people, share links. The more people know about these injustices, the more changes that can be made. Let's create a fucking social injustice league and change the fucked up world. Effed up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Done. Effed Up is executive produced by myself, Priya Hubbard, and Jessica Borges. Research and story is by me, Priya Hubbard. Additional research done by me, Jessica Borges. Executive Inquisitor is Keith Burke. Episode recaps written by Brandy Abbott. Social media hall monitors, Brandy Abbott and Paloma Diaz. Cover art is by Allie Kelly. You can find her work at Allie Kelly Illustrations on Instagram. That's A-L-L-I-E-K-E-L-L-E-Y Illustrations on Instagram. Our music is composed by Allegra Borges. Executive in charge of support, Jeff Berg. Technical consultant, Randy Maringer of Maringer and Unger. On-air distractions provided by Nima and Newman, a.k.a. Newman. Additional investigations are provided by... Cat Detectives, Monsieur Hercule Poirot, and Captain Hastings. Special thanks to Marilyn Miller, Chris Muma, Greg Taylor, Jill Gerlich, Tim Hedberg, Buddy Connor, Brad Bannon, Chris Wecker, Sandra Westervelt, Kim Cook, Diane Savage, Fred Whitehurst, Derek Kicker, the guys at La Brea Tower, you fucking saved my ass one day, Sam Peterson, and Jeff Berg. All right. Sweet. That's a wrap. Hold on. That is very loud. Boy, shitty britches. (laughs) Can you speed it up? Newman's He's in there reading a magazine with one paw and flying. (laughs) He's like, this is fascinating. (laughs) He's checking our research. (laughs) Totally. Okay. So the editorial board even wrote, especially in places... Pinch it off, bro. (laughs) Is he done? No.